Karen Baker, and welcome back to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Rose Wild. Rose is a former human rights lawyer turned chef, master food preserver, master gardener, and owner of the bakery Red Bread. Red Bread is not just a bakery, but committed to social justice and has provided over 74,000 meals working with the Los Angeles Food Bank and through bake sales with Gather for Good and Bakers Against Racism. Rose's work has appeared in numerous publications and she is a regular on the Food Network, Cooking Channel, Tastemade, and NPR. She wrote her first cookbook, Bread and Roses, 100 plus grain forward recipes featuring global ingredients and botanicals, where she shares her joy for grain in a comprehensive guide with recipes inspired by her travels across the globe. Welcome to the podcast, Rose. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here, Lauren. It's uh, lovely listening to your voice, honestly. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> I feel like it's already getting a little raspy as we get across. <laughs> well, that was a mouthful you had to deliver and you did it really, really well. Thank oh. you so much. Thank you. Well, Rose, I always start by asking, what's the first thing that you ever cooked and about how old were you? Oh, um, I think I was quite young and it was definitely an assisted cooking situation, but I'm sure as I got older, that was probably also the first thing I did on my own. Um, and that was make cookies. I pretty sure it's a chocolate chip cookie because like if your mind says if someone says think of a cookie I think that's normally the cookie everyone thinks of it's pretty iconic but I am a late summer baby which means that my birthday generally fell on the first week of school oh, and yeah. we did move around quite a lot as a kid. So uh, very early, my mother taught me how to bake cookies so that I, essentially I could go into school with a plate of cookies the first week and have new friends, steal the class, make it a party, <laughs> and essentially learn the lesson that pastry was like the fastest way to, to make a new friend. Um, and I think that the first time I assisted helping make these cookies was when I was three and a half, because I really didn't like that my brother went to kindergarten without me. So my mother them to let me just kind of hang out <laughs> at the private school. <laughs> I got cookies as a bribe as a three and a half year old. So that was that was the first thing I learned how to bake. That is so smart. Cookies really are the, the way to just soften any scenario, right? And I do think oh, that yeah. unless you could easily make friends. Actually, my son the other day, it was his birthday, and he just brought a whole bunch of cookies to school. And he's like, wow, he's like, this is the fastest way to make friends. Yes, I'm so glad that every generation is learning this lesson. It's it's so clear. It's a perfect food. Like you can hold it in your hand. It's not that crazy sweet. I mean, certainly mine aren't, but like compared to other pastries, like it's just it's perfect. Cookies are perfect. Yeah, they're portable. They're easy to hand out. Nobody. It's hard to resist one cookie. <laughs> yeah, totally. So could you tell everybody a little bit about yourself in your childhood? Because you grew up in, I think, a very unique household. Um, your parents owned the Good Earth Restaurant and your mother baked bread and your father ran the garden. So to me, that's just a perfect way to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I that was very much the sort of idyllic situation I was born into and I lived in until I was about three. My my parents co-owned a restaurant, as you said, called The Good Earth after the Pearl S. Buck novel. 
Um, and it was really centered on that health movement of the early 1970s and 80s and like whole grain and fresh from the garden. My father was a yoga teacher, an herbalist and a gardener. So he sort of ran all that side. And my mom was in the kitchen and taught a lot of philosophy classes because she was very interested oh, in wow. got her degree in comparative religions. So yeah, so I, I I very much grew up, I always say, with like the garden as my first babysitter because the garden was right next to the kitchen and there was a big window in the kitchen so she could watch us in the garden. And it always used to be that like uh, if you wanted, you know, people would ask my mom like what, would the, fa- what the favorite thing that grew, grew in her garden was um, and she would tell them it was the rose in her garden. Um, figure out that was me because there were no roses growing in the garden. <laughs> Then they would get um, a slice of pie or some other dessert. So even before I was the one giving away sweets, um, like finding me meant you got you got a treat. And then unfortunately, my parents parted ways. Um, we went to where I have a more extended family, which is in Ecuador, um, in South America. So uh, from the time I was about four till about 10, I was in Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador, high in the Andes. And um, that was really magical because it was an introduction to a totally different biosphere of like totally different fruits and color and culture and just really amazing and gave me like a deep appreciation for different food scenes um, really, really young. And then when I moved back to this country, I continued seeking out these opportunities as I grew up, um, both academically, professionally, and for pleasure to travel, work, and live in other countries. And I was just always very attracted to food. So I found myself in Morocco, Italy, Tibet, Greece, um, the UK, uh, in Asia, in China. So I had this great exposure and I ended up feeling like what I saw was a lot of what my parents had been doing at their store, like just grains being the basis of like so much food, like that we as the masses ate and a lot more fresh produce, a lot more simple approach to food, um, a lot more common knowledge, I think, in among like people you know, Mm -hmm. about how to make things and how to preserve things. Um, And also a lot more flowers. You know, I think that um, the other part of the book is this botanical element where it's not just about garnishes, but using florals and different botanical parts of a plant to like impart deep layered flavor. And I think in the States, we think of that primarily as like something you see at a Michelin restaurant you know, like yeah. really, really high fine dining. Right. But if you go most places in the world, there are days set aside to go out into the countryside and gather that flower to put it into your meals. There are, these flowers are actually the thing that, again, the masses eat. So I think um, a lot of what brought me to food and what I like kind of want to champion in food is this idea of these ingredients that are so robust and make life so much more delicious and more fun and more colorful that we have lost sort of in the um, efficiency mindset here in America of of monoculture and industry and things like that. Um, And I just want to recenter them and recenter the places that they're from. So (laughs) that's how I (laughs) Okay. I will just say this. When you first look at the cover of your book, it's very... It's very subtle. It says bread and roses. But then when you open it, you realize, wow, this is quite a behemoth that you've tackled. 
And you've done it so well. So I have to say thank you for that because it's really, really cool. It really is a comp. People say it's a comprehensive guide. It is a real comprehensive guide. You go into absolute detail. So let's start with whole grains. And for most Americans, when we think of grains, we think of flour. Yeah. Right. And when we go to the grocery, we see the sacks of flour. What are we buying? Let's start there. And how is it different from grains, whole grains? So it's a great question because I think that you always need to start with terms because we're not necessarily all on the same page. Um, and as a former lawyer, I love love defining terms. <laughs> so when you go to the grocery store, you are going to encounter generally all-purpose flour and um, whole wheat flour. And what we're talking about there really is flour that's been extracted. So you have a whole grain, which has three parts, the germ, the endosperm, and the bran. And white flour, all-purpose flour, is the endosperm. It's just the protein. It doesn't have any flavor. It's just structure. Whole wheat is basically brown all-purpose flour. They've reintroduced the bran in, but the process of milling has burned off the germ. So even though it's called whole wheat, it's not actually whole. You're only getting two of three. Additionally, there's no sense of origin there. So many, many different wheats can be mixed together to make whole wheat. And when we're talking about whole grain, we are for sure talking about that all three components are intact, the germ, the endosperm, and the brand, and we know exactly what grain we're working with. Sometimes there are whole grain blends, but usually those grains will then be called out. So you can kind of think of this when you like um, buy maybe champagne or camembert mm -hmm. or feta. These are actually products that have a specific kind of seal of origin um, that, uh, exists in many other parts of the world that we don't really have here, but it basically means it's traceable. Um, so I always think about when we're talking about sustainability, since that's such a huge broad category that what I'm really interested in is accessibility and, um, uh, traceability, mm -hmm. which essentially is a por portion of transparency. And this is how I feel like I can make good decisions about whole grain. And not only is whole grain way more flavorful mm -hmm. than the other two um, flowers you regularly find on the market shelf because it actually has the flavor components in it, um, but it's easier to digest because a lot of the enzymes and minerals and vitamins necessary to digest the protein portion are still there. So it may come as a surprise that something intact is more tasty and better for you than something that's only in parts, but it's true. Um, so that's really the big difference between whole grain uh, and regular flour on the shelves. And from there, you get into heritage flours, heirloom flours, ancient grains. And again, these are more terms that I've done my best to define in the book so that you can kind of navigate some of the noise around um, whole grains because... I think that we're all very excited, but we've sort of forgotten context. And that's really what I'm hoping to bring back to the conversation. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're doing that. And you've mentioned things like terroir and flavor. And when you think yes. of things like that, you automatically, I automatically think of things like wine. Mm. And so we've heard of wine tasting and you talk about flower tasting in your book, which I thought was so fun. Maybe you could tell everybody about the flower tasting wheel and and like things like tannins and body and an acidity that we don't normally associate with grains. Yeah, I I'm, I love that you pulled that out because the flower tasting wheel was one of my 
just proudest things in the book. It's a really beautiful um, illustration by Stacy Michelson, who's a talented artist I got to work with. And it really takes years of working with grains and tasting grains and having my own knowledge expanded by, as you said, like wine and cheese to develop this wheel. And what I basically saw was that there are foods that we're already accustomed to um, kind of um, abstracting and calling in more of ourselves to to the tasting. And I think that you see that, especially with wine, where sure, you can be a sommelier, but on the other hand, like nothing's a wrong answer, <laughs> you know, like because we all have cultural right. differences. So our flavor taste points are very informed by where we came from. Um, so things can taste fundamentally different. And I started using this idea of tasting grain uh, with some classes I did maybe eight years ago now, um, and often with children, because I felt like they were much more open to just like tasting grain sh straight. That makes adults, so much sense. Yeah, whereas adults would often be like, but wait, it's not cooked. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's called pork. <laughs> <laughs> um, but kids would just taste it. And, you know, they they're excited and they want to participate. So when I asked like, what does it taste like to you? They would yell out all kinds of things. And um, it was really amazing. <laughs> um, at one point, this very sweet young man, he must've been like 10 years old, told me that he, his um, Sonora mix with some spelt in it had tasted exactly like the smell of socks in his grandma's attic. <laughs> I love that because he knows what that tastes like, you know, and and that's really what I think the flavor wheel is meant to do. It's not meant to tell you what things in the book taste like, although I provide you sort of my experience as a guide, but give you the basics of tannins and acidity and earthiness or minerality as a language basis to start building your own vocabulary, um, because we can't do that without a starting point. So mm -hmm. I really hope the wheel can be something where someone is looking at it while they're tasting something and start to be able to identify things, right? Because training a palate is just another language. Um, and I think that if you've largely kept your palate sort of set only on the things you like, grain may be new for you because it has a lot of bitterness in it, like wine. It has mm -hmm. a lot of um, really lovely earthiness, like chocolate. It's so similar to so many things you really, really love, but you just haven't developed the taste for it. So I'm really excited for people to taste more with this and to eat more with this. That's sort of my tagline for this whole, this whole book is just to eat, eat more. And, um, <laughs> On the wheel, you also find some tests, which also assist you in doing that, a porridge test and a shortbread test to kind of teach you, you know, steps to bread or pastry. So beyond just tasting the grain, little simple ways to figure out what your most successful first step would be. Yeah, I, th I think what's really neat about it is it, it provides that framework because most people don't think of it. And so first of all, it it opens up their eyes and then does give them the, the vocabulary. But then also it encourages you to, you to think, okay, well, if I think I'm tasting this, this might be really great in like, I don't know, a muffin or you know what I mean? Yes. yes, um, yes and you can yes. start playing around with it more. Yeah, and I think that's a really um, good point because it's a jumping off point for creativity too. Because if you're tasting like milk and cream, maybe your mind is like, oh, berries. 
you know? And so it really helps you get into a more abstract creative mindset than just like, okay, this is good for me, <laughs> which I, ne I never think is compelling for, for health, for healthy food or for, right. cold foods. I think that that sort of messaging, even in my parents' time was like the doom of that movement was just like, it's brown, just eat it. It's good for you. So we're out here trying to make it. It's brown. It's beautiful. It's delicious. P.S. It's good for you. <laughs> Yeah, the PS is a big part of it, but let's let's focus on the yummy. Yeah, because it is. It's so yummy. Mm -hmm. So just as you traveled the world extensively, you take us through the continents with each chapter of the book. So let's start here with the Americas. You highlight quinoa, amaranth, and corn. And I think most people have heard about quinoa and corn, but maybe not amaranth. So what can you tell us about this grain? I love amaranth. It's really special. It's actually sort of in the same uh, family as quinoa, but it's smaller. Um, it is really super blonde. So the flower turns out like very golden. So anything you throw a little amaranth into is gonna have this really rich golden hue as if as if you were using the oranges eggs from your own backyard chickens. Like that's kind of the like cheat it's gonna give you. Um, it also has this really great sour flavor, which there aren't a ton of things out in the world besides citrus who give you a lot of sour. You know, there's tamarind and things like that, but amaranth really packs a sour punch. Um, so I really love it because when you pair it with things from that region, which is sort of the sort of other layer of the book is that each yeah. chapter is centered on a region of the world. And then not only are the grains highlighted there, but all the things they're paired with are also from that region. And the hope is to teach you what grows together goes together, which is this really big maxim in cooking, but we don't necessarily hear it in baking, whether it's sweet or savory, there just seems to be like a disconnect of some like vital lessons between those two. Yeah. We're trying very much to break down, but that sourness is such a beautiful balance to um, traditionally sweet pastries. Um, it brightens it. It balances it. If you go really high on the amaranth, you can get like an actual noticeable sour note. Um, I have a recipe for marigold amaranth benuelos in the book. Yes, I had that highlighted. <laughs> They're so fun. They're so easy to make. Bunuelos, for anyone who hasn't had one before, is it's just like a really simple dough with few ingredients. Ours are made special with amaranth and uh, marigold infusion. And you roll them out really thin and fry them off in like 40 seconds. It's so thrilling to watch them like bubble and dance in the oil. And then you toss them in sugar and they're just so fun. They crack in a million shards, they're tasty. And for me, they remind me a lot of Sour Patch Kids. Oh my God. Sour. So even though it's like a world away from an industrial food memory, <laughs> we are still able to sort of call on that experience and like hit um, hit a memory, I think, for a lot of people that they're going to be really excited about. I, I am. Oh, my gosh. I love Sour Patch Kids. So that's very exciting to me. Oh, good. <laughs> so quinoa, you make a quinoa churros with chocolate sauce, which is a classic. And I love that it's, you know, it's a childhood memory for you. But then the, using the quinoa flour makes it different. Yeah, yeah. Um, the quinoa flour makes it super tender. Um, mm -hmm. Quinoa, like like amaranth and corn, are is gluten-free. And naturally, that's going to tenderize things. So um, putting it in here 
makes the churro super soft. I make them really like chunky babies to like really soak up chocolate, but you can make them in any shape you want. You know, I know that um, just across the border, they're very popular in like a loop horseshoe situation and other people grew up with them like really long and skinny and filled with jam. So there's a lot of options there for you. But um, again, I think the like quinoa here, it has this like nuttiness that like really works with the warming spices of the like coriander and the like touch of cinnamon and the chocolate to like just make it a whole different sort of grounding experience that um, I think is is really special. And I think a lot of these recipes sort of play like a lot of them are 100% or naturally gluten free, but a lot of them also play with percentages and, and ratios of yeah. sort of standard all purpose flour and a whole grain. And I go in depth in the beginning of the book about how you can make your own sifted whole grain flour from whole grains if you want to completely adhere. But that just something I have learned over the years working in this field is that um, as amazing as 100% is, like for taste and nutrition and all these other things, a lot of things have developed because of all purpose flour, but we don't need to only rely on that. Like, mm-hmm different pastries. So by using it as a tool rather than foregoing it completely, I don't think that we are doing anything less. And at the same time, I think it will encourage more people to partake in whole grain because going 100 can feel very intense. But if we just do like 10, 15, 30%, you're gonna have this incredible boost of flavor And at scale, that is going to support your farmers and your millers and just make your grain shed so much stronger than if a handful of people go to 100%. So I'm here for all people to come at all levels and just have a little more flavor. Yeah. Yeah. I did notice that most of your recipes have that blend. You still use all purpose. So you're not throwing us in the deep end. Um, but I guess if we wanted to, we could eventually like play around with those ratios as well. Absolutely. Nice. And there is um there's guidance and tons of the headlines, head mm-hmm. notes about um how this one is an easy snap to go hundred percent without mm-hmm. any texture changes because of other components in the dish that provide for moisture and structure, etc. Whereas other ones like Yes, you can increase, but you will notice the following texture differences. So I try to also make it very clear to people that like every choice you make just gives you a slightly different result and to make sure that we're still connecting actions with consequences. Mm-hmm. So I think when we, we make choices and then we get to the end and we're like, what happened? I have no idea. <laughs> and that's because we don't know what these different things are doing in a baked good. So I hope to sort of illuminate that as well. Like, why this one is is an easy fix and another one might be a few rounds of testing for you to find what you like best mm-hmm. right and i think well the first thing that popped into my head was well what if i want to mill this at home do you have mm-hmm. any tips for people who want to try milling at home yeah i mean i love i have a mill at home i use a neutra mill i'm super fond of it i think it's um there's a lot of mills on the market but i think the neutra mill does a really great job of keeping things really cool while you're grinding which is super important because um when you add friction and heat you're essentially cooking so Mm -hmm. if you are milling super super fast or hot 
even if you are trying to maintain the whole grain, you're going to burn some of it off just with physics. Um, so the Nutramil, it's got about a six inch stone. Um, you can really set the grind really easily and the speed and sift it afterwards if you want, all kinds of options. But you really want to work sort of, even with that in mind, um, you really want to work sort of in batches. So I use my, grill, my, my, my mill at home to grind whenever I'm testing like a brand new grain or someone has gifted me something or wants me to give them some feedback. So I'm never milling a ton when like I'm making things for my bakery. I'm usually working with a miller to get those. Mm. Um, but if I am, I'll work, I'll have the mill on for like 10 minutes and then I'll shut it off for three minutes. Um, another 10 minutes and then shut it off for three minutes. And this way I just really guarantee that the whole milling process is super cold and super slow and I get the biggest distraction. And I've really noticed a difference. Like if you go nice and slow, you get this beautiful, creamy custard-esque feeling flour and if you just try and rip it through hard you're going to get something that's a lot more sandy and like feels hot huh. so patience is the main thing and if you have the economic capability to buy yourself a mill they're usually around like 100 to 300 dollars. so i'm never one to be like you have to have x y or z tool like i'm a big proponent of like use what you got you know even if that means making a cake in a pot <laughs> yeah you know, I don't want anyone to feel like they can't they can't do things to make their life more tasty and more beautiful. But there are also so many great regional mills around the country, and many of them are called out in the resource section of the cookbook. Um, so I hope people can play around with milling at home, but also like connect with their local mill. So once they fall in love with the grain, they can just get it in bulk. Yeah. Okay. Really quickly, we have to talk about blossoms, edible blossoms. What are some blossoms that most people have never tried but should? I think most people will think of things like lavender, but I saw that you listed Lily of the Valley, and I'm like, gosh, I wish I knew this when I was little because we had tons of Lily of the Valley just growing in my garden when growing up. I wish I had known to just taste it. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, one of the things that um, I think is really special or what I try to impart about all the blooms in this book is that a lot of them go beyond what you can see in maybe a United States book that says what flowers are edible mm -hmm. and um, really takes a broad global view. And, you know, if you only stick to resources from our country, there's so many ingredients that are labeled as toxic or poisonous. And if you dig a little deeper, um, it turns out there's a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with food for that. There's a lot of political motivation and a lot of bias. Um, food has always been super political. Um, it's so culturally motivated. Um, so I really try to kind of present that global perspective of like what is edible what people eat all over the world, and also differentiate between what is edible and what is palatable. Because mm. there's actually a ton of edible things, but you and I may disagree on what's palatable, what we like to eat. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that's where like the beauty of individual taste comes from. But some of the ones that I think that get people the most excited that you can eat are sunflowers and tulips. You can eat the whole tulip, uh, Tulip bulbs were eaten a lot in France many decades ago. Um, they're kind of like a sweet potato roasted. Same thing with sunflowers. I have recipes in there for roasting the core of the sunflower and then pulling it out and turning it into a compound butter, which is super delicious. It's, it's similar in flavor to 
uh, sunflower seeds, but again, with this like really super floral bent. So I really hope it just makes people kind of get a little bit of their childhood wonder back, like their, their eyes back for what's possible um, beyond just like the little pansies and violas that you can buy <laughs> like a $15 edible yep. snack. The biggest thing when sourcing these is that you make sure that you're buying them from a farmer who can answer some pretty simple questions about mm -hmm. whether or not they were grown without any pesticides sprayed on them and generally, you know, organically and treated well. And this is because you are going to be consuming them just like you would an apple or a carrot. So as much care as you would put into selecting those ingredients, I would put the same care into the botanicals because they're not just going to be decorating. They're going to add so much flavor to your foods and so much color and so much beauty. Oh, this is so exciting for me because it's a whole new world of food. So before I let you go, Rose, I have some quick closing questions that I love to ask. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you need an emergency go-to dinner? Oh, wow. Um, ugh, cook? I'm like, I need, if I need an emergency go-to dinner, I'm probably ordering pizza. <laughs> Honesty is the best answer. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, the closest thing I come to cooking, if I'm like really tired and need an emergency dinner, is probably opening some tin fish and pulling out some crackers. Like, I love that with like a glass of wine and like, I'm happy. That's easy. Oh, very good. What's the one recipe that you treasure the most? Oh, I don't know. I feel like recipes are so evocative. They're so telling of like moments in time and our personal history. Um, I think that there are recipes that I have even put in this book that I thought I would never, ever write down, except maybe on my gravestone. <laughs> a party gift, um, because they were really special and so loved and all these other things. Um, but I, I think probably like the recipes that are Maybe not as exciting to anyone else, but ones that I had growing up at the, like my big Hispanic parties, like um, my the Ecuadorian version of ceviche is like mm. orange juice and a little tomato juice and like tons of shrimp and red onions and maybe a little corn uh, and then tons of popcorn on the side. And you basically get this tart, super yummy seafoody bowl full of like sour gazpacho. Yeah. <laughs> throw tons of popcorn on it. Um, and that is not a ceviche I've ever come across anywhere else in the world. And I think in this country, we think of ceviche as like little plated pieces swimming in a gorgeous like color thing. But, right. um, but for me, it's the ceviche with all the popcorn on top. So yeah, that's, that's my favorite. So Google Ecuadorian ceviche, everyone, and you're welcome. I love it. So the popcorn just adds another layer of crunch and oh, that's so yes. good. Yes, texture. We are all about texture, which is another thing we can talk about that whole grain really helps us out with. That yeah. It is providing so much texture, which is super fun to play with. Mm. Okay. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? <laughs> I think that I would like to identify as a clean cook. <laughs> And I definitely have like some uh, trauma of enforced upon me from like kitchens to like keep my station super, super clean. But I think that my perception may be warped because <laughs> I've had a really dear chef friend tell me that every time she comes upon me, he feels like he's walking into a controlled hurricane. <laughs> 
but that it's always beautiful at the end. So what is, how is, who is he to judge? <laughs> I think that's probably very kind and also the most truthful. Well, you know what? I, I think that's true. Like it doesn't really matter how you get to the final product. Right. But I am always curious if people are neat yeah. or not, because I'm I mean, personally messy. Very clean at the end. That yeah. I can say. <laughs> yeah. As long as you clean up afterwards. <laughs> While it's happening, it might be a little crazy. I've been known to have buttercream in my hair. <laughs> um, what's a good kitchen tip that you can share? Always use high quality salt. Yes. Yeah, even if you're talking about kosher salt for seasoning or Malden or Jacobson or any sort of large flaky salt to finish, um, mm -hmm. it really will elevate everything, especially that finishing salt. It goes back to that texture, which is so essential to the experience of eating. I am a salt fanatic. I have a box on my shelf that says bread, but it's actually filled with 21 different salts. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, every week I like to share five little things with my audience, something that made me smile. Is there anything that made you smile this week? Oh, what a lovely tradition. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I've been I've been really touched this week by seeing people really be there, there for each other in a time of global crisis and just really support each other um, with just the simplest things of checking in on each other mm -hmm. and trying to hold space for people. So I'm always most moved by people um, in community. Yeah, that's such a good reminder, Rose. Thank you for that. Well, where can everyone find you? Where can they find Bread and Roses and all the good things that you're you're doing? Thanks. Um, uh, you can find me on my website at www.eatredbread.com. You can also follow along on Instagram at trosewild or at redbread. And my book will be available, is available Everywhere books are sold to pre-order and it'll be out October 24th. I'm really excited about it. Um, and I am going on a book tour to many major cities around the nation. So I really hope to see you there. And you can find all that information on the website. Oh, congrats, Rose. I am so excited for your book. It's incredible. The amount of work and research and everything that you put into it. It's, it's going to be a wonderful resource for a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you. This was such a delight. Aww. I am planning on baking this weekend and Rose has inspired me to be more playful with and appreciative of not just whole grains, but blossoms. Don't you feel like she's presented us with a whole new way of baking? I hope you're as inspired as I am. And thank you so much to Rose for letting us into your kitchen and sharing your unique perspective on baking with us. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if so, please share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy baking. <laughs>